Hi folks, this is the Rocky Mountain Short Takes on Suicide Prevention Podcast. I was the one who found this guest, and I found Chris Cada through an article she was writing for the Denver Post that actually was announcing that she'd no longer be writing for the Post and was going to take time out to um, work on a book about her brother's suicide. So I reached out to her because, one, she was a very engaging writer, and two, I wanted to hear the story that that she had to tell. So Chris, thank you very much for taking the time today to, to join us on this podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Chris, your story is about your brother's suicide. He was 15 and you were 12. Correct. And now that's four decades ago from what I understand, right? Right. Okay. I've had my 50th birthday. Let's put it that way. Okay. Well, I did that a long time ago and have moved on a decade or two. Um, So, but Chris, tell us what led up to your decision to to put this into a book? Well, I had always thought I dealt with, I'm doing air quotes, dealt with my brother's suicide, and I was just fine, no problem. And uh, then I had two daughters, and they turned, uh, my oldest turned 15, and my youngest was 12 at the time. So the ages my brother and I were, Um, when he died. And I uh, remember taking my older daughter to high school and just, I watched her get swallowed up by all those, that row of doors in front of this massive high school. And I just had my first, I guess you would call it panic attack. I had trouble driving home. I was just struck by this ear, you know, out of nowhere that my daughter wasn't going to come out of that high school um, because on some level, my brother went into high school. We did it younger then. It was, or no, we were older. Sorry. He was 15 when he went in and he never came out is one way of looking at it. And so all of a sudden it struck me that this could happen to me again, that I could lose someone as close to me as possible to this killer of suicide. And I just, all of a sudden I couldn't stop thinking about suicide and what I could do to help, help kids entering this age group. And then I'm a journalist and I found the statistic that suicide is the leading cause of death in Colorado for 10 to 24 year olds. And I just, I was so saddened by that, that all these decades later, it's this killer is still taking our young people at a higher rate than car accidents or cancer or anything else. So I'm hoping that writing about it will help some other kids choose a a path different than the path my brother chose. Thank you. Thank you so much for for sharing that. And I'm so sorry for the loss of your brother. This, you were 12. He was 15. You've been a successful journalist in that time span up to to now. And then the the almost simple event 
of watching your daughter go into the school put you back on this path? Was it a path that that you, I guess, what was your relation to your brother's death during that interceding time? Well, it's interesting, writing the book, there was this overwhelming message when I was a kid, especially from adults, to just not talk about it, that my parents had been through enough, and so I needed to be good and not upset them, and so I learned right away, the day after he died, to keep my feelings to myself, and in a way, I feel like my brain wasn't developed enough to deal with this grief, and it's something I've learned, that grief is patient, and it waited for me to be able to deal with it. To answer your question, I really didn't deal with it. I went through college. Once I moved away from the town, Loveland, where Mark died, and people didn't know me as the kid whose brother committed suicide, I didn't tell anybody. I I didn't tell anybody in college, in my first couple jobs. It's a thing I told a few trusted people. But their reaction was the look on that a person's face um, when you tell them, oh, my, my brother, when you tell them about your tragedy, a lot of people just don't know what to do with that, which is understandable. But I lost a lot of people if I would tell them about Mark. So I just quit telling people. I just said, I'm an only child. Because you'd be surprised how often the question comes up, oh, you have any brothers and sisters? And it's just a getting to know you question And so I just learned to say I was an only child. You know, sometimes my mom would bring Mark up. He has the same birthday as my dad. So it was always a little August 30th, you know, it's dad's birthday, but it's also Mark's birthday. And or at Christmas time, there'd be an ornament he made hanging on the tree. Yeah, there was years and years where people didn't know. And I don't know if I'm going on too long about this, but I worked at the Colorado Inn here in Fort Collins for 10 years, and there was a double suicide. Two teenagers drove their car into the wall up at Horsetooth, and I heard everybody in the newsroom, the community, just saying, why, why, why? And so I wrote a column that they're never going to have a satisfactory answer to that question, and as a survivor... I just wanted them to know that and to, I was trying to offer condolences of a different kind, you know, that you'll come to make peace with this, hopefully, but you're never going to have an answer that's going to satisfy this hole that's been ripped in your chest, you know, so they ended up running it on the front page. And so it was like a coming out for me in the 90s. And there were people in the newsroom that were actually hurt. They thought they were friends of mine. I mean, they were, but I had never told them about Mark. And so I got some initial reaction, but then when that quieted down, I just, I kept it to myself again till the girls mm-hmm. got old enough that I had to deal with it. And I know that one of the things that drew me to, to your story you talked about you talk about in in a way of post traumatic um, stress mm-hmm. and how your symptoms are your situation and one of other survivors mirrors that. What? How can you say a little bit more about that? 
I actually, I, I've always been the person that's never sick, you know, I'm tough. If something happens to me, I'm not going to complain or, you know, my arm's hanging off by a thread. I'm not going to go to the emergency room. I don't want to bother him. Um, I'm just kidding. But I, I literally got sick. I mean, I, I've heard about PTSD. My uncle was in Vietnam. He has PTSD. But there's still this sense like that it's not real, that it's not a real thing, you know, that it's, oh, why can't they deal with it, you know, and then, and then it happened to me. And I found myself explaining over and over that this was real. And, and then to add to that, it's been almost 40 years since Mark died. So they're like, how can you possibly be this traumatized when this happened 40 years ago? And I honestly, Joe, it's worse. This past year has been worse than 1981, the year my brother died, because my mind is developed enough to really realize the impact all this had on me. And anyway, I, I got sick. I lost a lot of weight. I, lost, I couldn't drink. I can't sleep. You know, I realized I was drinking to numb out. I, I just, and it didn't work anymore. You know, I just became so upset like once the beast is out of the cage you can't you can't control it if you have a drink right anyway and just trying to educate people around me to what that is you know because people have met this Chris Cada and they've known her for decades and then all of a sudden I'm like no I don't want to do that I don't want to I can't do this anymore or I'm I'm not the same person, you know, in a way I'm going back to the 12 year old that was so angry and bewildered. So that's hard, difficult for people to understand. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and difficult for you to also, I mean, difficult on you. I mean, how have you tried to understand this? Well, I just, I'm a journalist, you know, at heart, and I always, I just research the hell out of all of this, you know, and, you know, I even felt weak making, I, I finally went to my boss and said, hey, this is a thing that's going on, but I was afraid to, because I thought they're going to not renew my contract at CSU to teach. They're going to think there's some crazy mental breakdown person in front of all these kids, you know, students. I actually didn't tell until the semester was over because I, I want to be in front of these kids, but it's hard to hide what's going on when there's 18 faces looking at you, waiting for you to say something, and you've just been thinking about the time your brother pulled you out of the swimming pool or whatever, you know, like I'm still living in the 80s in a way, or the 70s actually. And that's that's a poignant question because coming taking it easy on myself has been the hardest thing because I I was the first person that didn't believe it. It was like, Chris, you're a mom. You have to take care of your kids. Like you need to get your shit together personally so that you can play these other roles that you're supposed to play now. You're not twelve. <laughs> yeah, and the and one of the things that in our conversations before before this was the, that kind of the the dual role of this is my 
experience. This is what I've lived. But also because of your, because you're a journalist, mm -hmm. having to dig deeper in almost an objective, tremendously subjective way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, and I found myself in some of these reports, like the dialogue of clinical neuroscience is one place I was reading and I thought, I have to infuse this with my own experience to make it relatable. I mean, nobody wants to read through nothing personal, the researchers, but you know, uh, you've dealt with some, you know, you have to glean out of there. What, what does this really mean? How can I keep my teenager safe? You know, that's one thing. A lot of people, when they hear I'm writing this book, they want to know how they can keep their teenager safe. And that's, you know, where I can, put the research for them. But some of the most disturbing things are that, for me, a lot of people make the decision in a hurry, in less than an hour from when they decide to when they carry it out. I think there's this, a little bit of a safety feeling that people have that there's gonna be warning signs. And so they always ask me, well, what were the warning signs? Did you see the warning signs? Which by the way, don't ever ask a survivor that because it makes them think they could have done something that puts the onus on them. In a way, I'm like, I was 12, first of all. You wouldn't expect a 12-year-old to think, oh, I bet my brother's going to kill himself. You know, you think he's going to feed the rabbits or drink beer or whatever, but um, not that. I'm sorry, I went on a tangent. Maybe you can lead me back. Um, but it's that combination of oh, the sure. objective and the personal. Yeah. And just how, you know, how that, that balance. And one of the things that I, that I was really interested with what you were saying right there was that you'd be reading, um, you know, a research journal, a research article, and but then have this deep feeling, well, what about this? Yeah, right. The experience in here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, my editor actually told me a couple times to not rely, like don't regurgitate research. Tell your readers how this looked for you for you and your family. What happened with you and your family? Not just, you know, this many uh, percentage of suicide survivors have a higher risk or whatever. So, you know, I could talk about, yeah, I felt that way after my brother died because you, you see it as an option all of a sudden. I mean, it, that wasn't in my world. I didn't know anybody who had died anyway. I, and my great grandparents were still alive. So it was like, all of a sudden that's a, a reality. So I wrote about that instead of just the statistic that survivors are this percentage more likely to die by suicide or to attempt. I said, yeah, I, I felt that way because of, you know, my big brother did it. <laughs> uh -huh. Another thing that, that I was in earlier conversations was the path that you're with, this you share 
with your parents. Mm-hmm. And I was really struck by how your family, this family, is sharing this path, but is also the path is so different for for each of you. Yeah. Tell me if it's okay to to relate how that that works for you or how that happens. Well, it's interesting because ABC News made a documentary about my brother's death that aired on national television about seven months after he died. And I all of a sudden started thinking after all these years, hey, I, I remembered it. Some things you just block so far back. Anyway, I said, I bet mom and dad have a copy. But I went up to their house and I looked for it when they weren't there. Because there's kind of this unspoken truce we have that we don't bring Mark up. Because when he's been buried that, that deeply, it's, it's like it's my dad's choice, for example, to do that. So I don't want to break his choice, his way of coping, or my mom's, which is, you don't have enough time to talk about my mom and I. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, so I... I did all of this on my own. I didn't want to upset them. But at some point, I started asking my dad. My dad and I go skiing together a fair amount. It's a long ride up there, especially with traffic. <laughs> and so I brought it up a few times. You know, I said, hey, did you ever find a copy of that documentary? And so he he talked to me about Mark because he wanted to help me. But other than that, I mean, it's just been very different. My mom, right away when Mark died, she started a teen center in Loveland. She started peer-to-peer counseling in the high school. She was looking for all the things she could do to make a difference. She talked a lot about how kids that are in great need get attention, but kids like Mark, who on the surface was fine, might not be so uh, easy to see the burden that's haunting him or however you want to paraphrase it. She got really active that way. And it's just been tough because I don't feel like I can go to my parents for support. I was told early on that I shouldn't upset my parents because they'd already been through enough with what happened to Mark. I say happened to Mark, but anyway, I was left alone to deal with it. And that's a big part of my book too, because Something like 87% of kids in this country live with a sibling, which is more than live with a father. For every teen suicide, I almost called my book Top of the Stairs, because for every suicide, teen suicide, there's likely, eight out of ten times, that there's a little kid sitting at the top of the stairs, kind of in the shadows, listening to what's going on in the living room, where the adults are having all these conversations. And it used to be the thought, oh, we're going to protect the kids by not talking about what happened. And what it does is it just leaves the child there alone to try to figure it out. And when you're 12 or whatever age you are, it's too much to make sense of without an adult. So that's another really big part of my book is the siblings and these children that are left behind by suicide that, because it can really change the way your brain forms. 
speaking mm-hmm. of PTSD, a lot of trauma survivors like myself, we I have a four alarm fire bell going off in my head all the time, you know, so like every time my phone rings, I think something's wrong. Like Some people are, oh, the phone, somebody's calling me. I'm always like, oh, no, what happened? You know, mm-hmm. so, right. um, that's a really long answer to your question. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike your editor, you know, I don't have a, a word count. <laughs> nice. I love it. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess for to talk about a word count, to talk about the process of writing a book, to get it the 15 months in in the in the making. It it turned into 19. Oh, okay. So I want credit for all of those months. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, it's I mentioned earlier, I'm a journalist, so I'm used to a really quick turnaround. I mean, even hours, usually at the newspaper. I worked at a daily newspaper for more than a decade. So I'm used to like, here's your assignment. And then by the time you go home, it's off your hands, right? And this book, I mean, I it lives with me. It's Mark and I have been hanging out for, you know, 19, 20 months now. And in a way, that's been... Uh, awesome. And when I finished the book, I w- I had this secondary kind of loss because I was used to, I don't know if I mentioned, but I kept a diary every day since I was 10. And so part of this process was going through those diaries. And it's like, Mark and I did this, Mark and I did that, because we were inseparable. We grew up in the foothills 20 minutes from town. So it's not like we had play dates or camps, you know, you hang out with your siblings, that's uh-huh. go play with your sister, you know, <laughs> it wasn't like, um, it, and we had no phones, God forbid. So anyway, we spent a lot of time together. And the good part of this process was just reliving all those memories and all the, what he meant to me and how we related to each other. And so when I was done with that, I was really sad again. And sad is such a small word to talk about that, but I was just empty again, hollowed out again, you know, when I finished the book. Mm-hmm. Another loss. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to be hanging out with Mark anymore. So um, <laughs> we do. We hang out. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I've gotten used to, like, I'm not a spiritual person really, but I've come to. I mean, I hear my brother's voice in my head a lot now, and and sometimes I talk out loud to him, and you know, I'm 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 okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is it the writing, getting it down onto paper or screen? Yeah. Um, been a catharsis? Has it what? Yeah, and you'd hope that, like, a lot of my friends were, but it's cathartic, right? Because they just (laughs) felt so badly for what I was going through. And, you know, a lot of my friends told me, well, don't do this. It's going to be horrible. Why in the world? And I said, I can't not do it. It's like in my head all the time. It keeps me up, you know. Mark's like, get up, get to work. But it, it is because... On a deeper level, I'm I'm more okay than I have been in a really long time since probably before Mark died. I mean, I'm 
my emotions are a lot closer to the surface all the time now, but the deep down stuff is is getting better. I, I can feel it. I don't necessarily, this is going to sound overly dramatic, but before I started writing this book, and part of why I started writing it is I just have this deep-seated belief my daughters aren't going to survive adolescence. I just know that on some level. I'm like, well, a lot of them, kids die. You know, that's just what I think. And I'm starting to let some light in on the thought that maybe my children will survive adolescence, which <laughs> is just revolutionary to me. So, and probably to them, I'm always like, be careful, be careful. You know? <laughs> God forbid. One time my daughter, she'd hate me telling this story, but she told me, because I'm, I'm so worried about their mental state too. It's not just like wear your bike helmet. For me, it's like what's going on under the bike helmet, right? That that worries me. And one day she said, mom, I'm not suicidal. I'm just annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> Valid point. I mean, I'm thankful that I can have those kind of conversations with my daughters and their friends and my college students. Um, they all know because these things are happening to them and they have these feelings, but there's this kind of thing in our society that talking about them makes them real. And so they're afraid to mention that they've been feeling that way. And anyway, so that makes me feel better that I'm helping. I think I feel like I'm helping. So mm -hmm. that's better. And I, I feel better that Mark's getting some airtime, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. so. Yeah. Just out of curiosity from a writer, as a journalist, you, the story you tell is, is factual. Did you ever, have you ever written fiction? I haven't. No. And it's interesting because I took creative writing in college and one of them was, they said, write a story about somebody having their life, somebody saving your life. Uh -huh. And even to that assignment, I wrote the about the time my brother pulled me out of the pool when I was drowning. And the editor, my um, teacher, sorry, said, <laughs> um, well, this is just, you need to make it more believable. You know, this is all this drama. I mean, who's? 11-year-old brother would pull their 8-year-old sister out of the or, you know, I mean, hopefully a lot of kids, but he was like, you know, this character isn't believable. And I said, well, he he is believable because that's the true story, you know? <laughs> and this is in a fiction class. Even in a fiction class, I was like, well, I already have a good story about that. I don't have to make one up. So, mm -hmm. I yeah, I've never, even when my kids were like, tell me a bedtime story, I'd talk about camping with my dad or something. I just couldn't. <laughs> I would think it's just not, not, not in you. Yeah, I guess not. And I just really, it was important to me that this book is factual, even though there's so many emotions. I feel like having my diaries, because that's what you call them when you're 11. You don't call it a journal. You call it a diary. Uh. <laughs> but having those thoughts written down was so, I don't think I could have written the book otherwise, because that inner, that journalist that is me is like, well, you don't know that for sure, you know, but having it written down, I'm like, 
I know for sure we had raspberry popsicles and not strawberry. <laughs> Sometimes my editor was like, that doesn't really matter. But I'm like, I don't know. I just don't want, I feel like if any of the part, book wasn't 100% true, that it would draw him to question the other parts of it. So that wasn't your question, but I was just a real stickler that everything be accurate to the, uh -huh. to the world. Yeah. Who knows? I might write fiction someday, but. Yeah. Well, I'm just curious on that. Yeah. And when you were saying the, about the need for it to be true, if, if a part of it wasn't, then maybe the whole thing um, unravels in some sort of way. Well, can I tell you a quick funny story? Sure. <laughs> Believe it or not, there are funny stories um, in my book. But... I used to write Dear Dairy instead of Diary. <laughs> and what I think is so funny is I, I'm a horrible speller. I still am. Horrible speller. And um, the front of my diary says, My Diary. So this correct spelling is on the cover. And every day for a year, I opened that book and wrote Dear Dairy. <laughs> and so... My editor and I had this long conversation. She's like, would it be distracting that you say Dear Dairy? And I'm like, but you have to leave it because that's the way I wrote it, you know? And, <laughs> and part of me, there, I include things in there that show I was a 10-year-old, 11, 12-year-old girl, 13. And when this happened, and it's, a, it's also a book about the end of childhood because I've seen with my own daughters, you know, that usually childhood kind of slips away from you here and there as you paint your fingernails, get a phone, whatever. Not saying you paint your fingernails, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I'm going to go with it. Yeah, not that anything's wrong with that. Um, but but with me, I I knew exactly when my childhood ended. And you can see it in, the, in my diary because I go from, you know, slumber parties and Polly Beckett is being mean because she's hanging out with Jackie or whatever to I'm going to drink beer under the bridge by Skate Castle because that's what Mark used to do, you know, and, uh, you know, it, the book's a lot of things. Maybe that's why it's so long. What do you hope people get from this book? Well, I hope they find someone like themselves on a, a lot of different levels. I've talked to you before about how alone suicide survivors feel, partially because of the shame, but I've never had a community of peers that have been through this. I've never met anyone who lost their older brother when they were a child, despite it being 40 years. And I hope my book finds them and I, I hope they see themselves and I selfishly would love to meet them. <laughs> Because I just, I've never, when you're a suicide survivor like this, you know, it's not something my husband can relate to or my friends or, you know, it's just even on some level as we talked about my family because they were parents and it, they were adults and it was different for them. So I hope my book finds people that have been through this. And we were also talking earlier, there's this, feeling that on some level that suicide survivors are fragile or uh, attempters even are fragile and we have to, and on some level we are, but we're also incredibly tough. I mean, what 
what survivors have been through is, you know, just <laughs> unparalleled. And not that it's a competition, but I talk about that. I mean, if someone's lived through suicide, you, you're badass. And I would just like to congratulate you on that. And, you know, maybe you can find that in my book. And also, I hope my book reaches parents that are worried about their adolescence, which is pretty much every parent of an adolescent, I I believe, because it's scary, you know, when you see that statistic that suicide is the leading cause of death, 10 to 24-year-olds in Colorado. I mean, we can help them learn how to drive and wear their bike helmet and talk to them about drugs and all of that stuff, but we need to talk to them about this too. And we need for them to know that they can if they have start to have these horrible feelings, you know, we're their ally. We're, we understand it's not like they're doing anything wrong. You know, it's, it's part of the adolescence to have this darkness whisper in your ear. So I, I originally thought it was for teenagers, but my editor's like, no, no, this isn't for teenagers, but maybe some older and teenagers, young adults will find value in it as well. Mm-hmm. So. And on another level, it's for anybody who cares about kids, which I think hopefully covers most of the population, (laughs) because you don't have to be a parent to be that person. There's also a statistic that I end the book with is that a young person's 3.5 times less likely to commit suicide if they have a trusted adult they can speak to. So that's the number one, by far, protective factor. And so any of us can do that. Anybody can see somebody that is maybe struggling. I mean, even if it's the the kid that serves your coffee at Starbucks every morning, you know, you can still take time to see how they're doing. And that's kind of my soapbox I get up on. But I just really hope, I mean, people feel hopeless when they hear that statistic about suicide and when they hear, I mean, here in Fort Collins, we had three 11-year-olds commit suicide within a, like, two-month period. And you just get this feeling like, oh, my God, there's nothing we can do. An 11-year-old, you know, and it's just, but you can, you know, you can. And so I, I hope that my book does that, you know. Mm-hmm. That caring adult realizes that they can make a difference. Yeah, and they, and you know, as teenagers, you might not even know they're listening to you, you know, their eyes are rolled so far back in their head, you know, they might fall over backwards, but I still, you know, my daughter's friends, I'm like, you're awesome, by the way, you know, or just (laughs) random thoughts like that. Just, you never know what a big impact you could be having on somebody, so, and I'm Mm -hmm. not like... Pollyanna go around blowing sunshine everywhere, usually in my life. But um, in this case, I, I've really found, I mean, what can it hurt to reach out to a teenager? I mean, there's no mm-hmm. downside. So. <laughs> so you're going to be doing book signings mm-hmm. at yeah. some point. Yeah. You have, you'll have done the reading, read some things from your book that are going to resonate with with different people. They're going to line up. They're going to, one at a time, come to you. They want your 
your signature, but they also want more than that. Mm-hmm. And you're going to reach folks and then have a moment with them. How, how is that going to be? Yeah, I've thought about that. I have had a book. I've had essays in a couple of books, and I've had book signings before, but it wasn't on this topic. You know, it was like relationships between mothers and daughters, which is also a big topic. But, you know, you can just have a little moment. It doesn't, Uh without going into it, but if someone's in your line and it's like, um, on the cover page of my, my manuscript, it says, 15 taken by suicide by Chris Cata, Mark's sister. And that's how I want it to be on the book. And I feel, I imagine when someone's in front of me, you know, was, did you lose somebody? Who did you lose? And I I do want to know, but it's not a short conversation, you know, and I feel like I do want to have an authentic conversation with them. And I mentioned earlier, I hope to reach out to the suicide prevention centers or maybe some sort of grief counselor in the town that I'm visiting so that I have someone there with me or that mm-hmm. people can form a small group given that we're allowed to meet by that point in our lives. <laughs> you know, we'll sit six feet apart, but just so that they can continue that conversation because when people read my book, my editor is the only person that's read it start to finish. And she said it, not haunted her, but she said she'd go to sleep thinking about Mark and I. She'd wake up thinking about Mark and I. It's a very, it's a very personal, I'm letting people in everywhere. I don't hide anything. And so it, it is, it's, they're going to feel like they have a relationship with me because of the way this book is written. And I want to honor that. And I, I actually have, not to be egotistical, but I have worried that I will be able to give readers you know, that kind of moment or t- a piece of my time, you know, because I mm-hmm. want to, but I do feel like this is a untapped vein or I don't know how to put it, but there's not a book out there like this. I know I've looked for it. I would have loved to find it, you know, I would have been so happy to find it, but hopefully this will do that for other people. Mm-hmm. They're out there. <laughs> yeah. Be out there. Thanks for your confidence, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Quite. Yeah, well, and and in so many ways, it was the sincerity of your voice Mm -hmm. in reading, you know, what you were signing off from this column. Mm -hmm. And it was the, yeah, the sincerity, the honesty there that made me want to reach out and follow up uh, with you. Well, I'm glad you did. Yeah. (laughs) The, you know, so it has winding down now. The one thing I'd love to, to bring you back after, after some of that experience and, you know, and look at it and, you know, uh, touch on on what 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 that's been like for you. 
we've come to believe that you know, listening to those with the lived expertise that there's there's a lot there. So so one, I'll take this moment to to say we'll get back together okay, um, after after a while. And, and then is there one one last thing you'd like to share with us? Well, I I just have this feeling anybody who's been in therapy, they're fifty minute sessions, right? And usually <laughs> You watch the clock and you're like, okay, I only have five minutes. I better make this good. You know, we better get down to it right now. And yes, I've been in a fair amount of therapy in my life. But, and so it's good to know that this isn't the end of the conversation. And I just, I want to put it out there. I am just a hundred percent open to talking to people. And I want them to know that I find myself apologizing before I tell my brother's story a lot because it's, it feels like a burden that you put on people, but there are people out there that can take some of that burden and share it with you and make it lighter, you know? So I'm happy to be one of those people. Hopefully we can all find each other so that it's not just something you have to carry by yourself. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Chris.com. <laughs> That's right. and, and I will have a link to your website. And I should point out right away that it's a non-traditional Chris, and yeah. it's spelled C-H-R-Y-S-S. -S. Yes. Wow. Chris Mark's sister. So, mm. all right. So much more. Yes. Very much more. And we're really looking forward forward to the the book coming out. Um, I've been lucky enough to read a couple advanced chapters, and I think you've got a great style and a great voice. So, Chris, thank you very much for for your time today. Thank you. Talk to you again. <laughs> yeah. So that's going to be it today, folks, for this week's. Um, short takes on suicide prevention and we'll keep everybody posted on the progress of the book but you know what we're trying to do here is give voice and you know show that there's a lot out there and a lot that we can do for one another thanks for being here and stay mm -hmm.